I'm Derek Pitts, and welcome to The Curious Cosmos. Today, we're pulling back the curtain on a phenomenon I'm sure we're all familiar with, but we may not take very seriously. UFOs, or Unidentified Flying Objects. You know exactly what I'm talking about when you hear these letters and words. Odd things seen in the night sky. Reports of flying saucers. You know, the kind of thing you'd see on every pulp fiction periodical you've ever seen. Well, today, I'm really very excited to be joined by my guest, Leslie Kane, who has done the work to go beyond the sensationalism and dig out that nugget of truth that we don't know what these are, but we really could understand better if we just put some real science effort into it. Leslie, thanks for joining us this afternoon. Thank you, Derek. It's so great to be with you. Miles O'Brien, science correspondent for the PBS NewsHour and a producer and director for Nova said, like me, Leslie Kane is an agnostic on the issue of UFOs. Her book is a fine piece of journalism, not about beliefs, but about facts. Kane presents the most accurate, most credible reports on UFOs you will ever find. She's fought long and hard to discover the facts and let the chips fall where they may. She may not have the final smoking gun, but I smell the gunpowder. And you know, that quote was, I guess it was 12 years ago, that quote. So I think we have more gunpowder now than we had then. Yes, you're absolutely right. There is more gunpowder. Lately, the Defense Department has publicly admitted that unidentified flying objects, UFOs, do exist. And a new term, UAP, Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon, is gaining wider use in reference to this perplexing phenomenon. At the same time, support is beginning to emerge for a truly scientific investigation about unidentified aerial phenomenon. There are boatloads of skeptics who have very little, if any, knowledge of the extraordinary amount of observations provided by highly respected and credible military sources who believe a proper study should be done to understand what we're seeing. Part of what's beginning to emerge is the separation between unidentified aerial phenomenon as being just that, objects that are seen but not understood, and UFOs, unidentified flying objects, which always seems to carry with it the concept that we're talking about alien spacecraft carrying alien beings from some other part of the universe or the galaxy or something like that. Here, what we're trying to separate out is the difference between these two, unidentified aerial phenomenon being just that without the layer of aliens added onto it. Unidentified aerial phenomenon could possibly include that, but that's only one possibility of many for which we still have no clear explanation. So Leslie, can you start us off by walking us through what the military observations show? Absolutely. There's a lot to unpack there. You've made some very, very good points there, Derek. And I just want to comment First, if I may, about the UAP versus UFO designation, because they've actually even recently upped the unidentified aerial phenomena one more level to make it even more broad. It's now unidentified anomalous phenomena or phenomenon. Uh -huh. And that was just, yeah, just a few months ago in the legislation that Congress passed. And by the way, when Leslie mentions Congress here, 
She's actually referencing the work done by the House Intelligence Counterterrorism Counterintelligence and Counterproliferation Subcommittee. There's a mouthful. Following the May 17, 2022 congressional hearings on UAPs. They decided to call it anomalous. And the reason being that they're not always aerial. We now know that sometimes these objects go under the water or are seen under the water. So it incorporates now even a broader range than the original term UFO, which you mentioned, which actually never meant alien. It just stood for an object in the sky that couldn't be identified. But as you point out, people have come to associate that term with flying saucers piloted by little green men or however however they might imagine it, you know, like in the movies and they come and they attack us and they're coming from other planets and all of that. So as you said, we absolutely had to move away from that acronym, which the government and the military and the scientific community have done. But I just wanted to comment that it's actually recently been changed again, which I find really interesting. I'm glad you bring that point out about anomalous because As you say, it broadens, but it also gives us a chance to step further away from all of the cultural overlays in popular culture that have sensationalized, you know, the whole exploration of this phenomenon. So leaving the sensationalism behind and moving forward is a great step forward in maybe perhaps eventually coming to some real understanding of what's going on here. Absolutely. And just also the word phenomenon is really a much better one than object because they're not always physical objects, at least as far as we can tell. Uh, Sometimes people experience lights or you see something on radar, but you don't see it with your eye. You don't really know what it is. And the experiences that people have when they see these things, you know, have a very broad range of how they affect people. So, yeah, phenomenon is also a better term than object. What's changed, it's really been more the Navy than the Air Force, which has been forthcoming in recent years with more statements. And of course, what started this whole change in perspective that you referred to was this New York Times story in 2017, in which I was one of three authors of that story. And with that story, we released two videos from the Navy of UFOs. And these were the first time we've seen actually official videos of UFOs taken from Navy jets in which the Department of Defense acknowledged, yes, that's what they are and we we don't know what they are. So they it was really a big deal for everyone to see those videos and also for us to break the news that there was a program within the Department of Defense studying these phenomena, these UFOs, these UAP because that showed to the rest of the world, to the scientists, to Congress, that there is something to this because the Department of Defense isn't going to commit resources, staff for 10 years to studying this if there's nothing to it. It took it up to a whole new level. And then many things happened after that, which we can discuss. But that's how it all started. And I understand the Navy really put considerable resources behind trying to figure out what it was that was being seen. So this wasn't a situation where what was shown could have been easily dismissed as, say, a fluke in the equipment or, you know, just weather balloons or some other anomalous flashes of light. 
And we also have to remember that these are very, very well-trained and extensively experienced aviators who see a lot but have great responsibility and thereby come with great credibility. Exactly. And just so people know, most sightings can be explained. Weather balloons, Venus, all kinds of things. Birds, airplanes, sometimes people will take a picture and it looks like a UFO, but most of them have explanations. But as you point out, the Department of Defense program was only interested in cases for which there was a lot of data. The witnesses were credible, as you described, very highly trained observers. And there was enough data to be able to eliminate conventional explanations. And the other element, of course, is that, that these things seem to demonstrate very, very sophisticated technology that we don't seem to have. I mean, unless we have very super secret things hidden away. But basically, our officials have said, we don't have this kind of technology. Russia doesn't have it. China doesn't have it. What does that mean? The technology is really what's of concern to the Department of Defense, because anything we learn about it, we don't want our adversaries to know, because it's so advanced and so powerful. And then there's a second universe of of interest in this, which comes from the scientific community, which is more about just the curiosity and the uh, seeing this as a scientific problem, like you might see a black hole or anything else that you want to study in the universe. That's right. But let's put some framing on this in terms of numbers, if you will. I want to go back to your 2010 book, UFOs, Generals, Pilots, and Government Officials Go on the Record. And I recall, Leslie, that in that book, Of that number of reports that had been submitted, around 95% of them could be explained, and there were 5% that couldn't be explained. Can you just review the numbers for me on that so our audience has a general idea of what the scale might be of what we're talking about in sightings? Absolutely. That's exactly right. That is how I wrote it in the book. And that's talking about sightings from everyone The Department of Defense didn't even deal with sightings from the the average person. They only were interested in military, like Navy sightings or reports from the Central Intelligence Agency or the Air Force. So that already takes them up to a, a very high level. So there were more unexplained cases than there would be among the general public. But in the general public, you know, when people see something, there's almost always an explanation. And I checked with government agencies around the world and different databases and, and groups that study this, that, that about 90 to 95 percent. And when people just say, oh, I think I saw something, those can usually be explained. It may be nowadays people have more sophisticated equipment or they have better cameras, you know, that maybe that ratio has gone down a little bit and people can recognize more easily themselves something that's not something anomalous just because everybody's walking around with a cell phone now which they weren't then i mean you know everybody's snapping pictures but the pictures are often very hard to decipher there are so many reports derek and so many photographs where it's just a matter of we don't know and we'll never know what that was you know sometimes you just can't figure it out you don't have enough data or it takes months to investigate a particular photograph you know and you just you don't have the expert available to do that so there's a lot that's just out in the ether in the air was a persistent rattle of sound Albin described it as leaving a greenish streak behind it that glowed for some seconds series of lights in a v-shape rushing over ufos 
flying saucer. Suddenly a small, there's a large silver disc-shaped object. Must have seen it. Does this constitute proof? Obviously the cases that we are interested in, that those people who investigate this are interested in, are the ones by the most credible observables with the best technology to capture the data and that can not be explained in any other way. So they've already passed a very, very high bar of examination simply because of who was doing the observing and then the research that was done. So these are already like way up there of being, we really can't identify what this is. Exactly. And they'll go into the centralized group and then that group can draw on all the most sophisticated technology available to them. And it might not only be from the Navy, but they could go to analysts from the CIA or analysts from some other department, photographic analysts, radar experts, you know, they have a whole pool of experts in which they can draw on. So when they come out and tell you that this video of this craft flying along clouds and rotating like we've seen is really not something they can explain, you know that they have put this thing to the absolute most sophisticated level of analysis possible. And some of that information also remains classified. So people have to realize that there's a wealth of information that we don't even have access to. And I think we have to add the point though, Derek, I'm sure you would agree that just because we don't know what it is does not mean it's aliens. Absolutely not. It just means that we don't know what it is. And so we see this happen all the time in astronomy. It just goes on in so many different experiments. And we look at the behavior of a particular star that has, it's emanating certain kinds of radiations in a pattern that does this and that. And it also has some byproducts that we've never seen before. So what do we do? We make some observations. We try to figure out a mechanism that might cause that to happen. We even build models that allow us to run through so many different permutations of all of the things we see to try to come up with a model with a mechanism that reproduces what we see. And once we do that, we ask everybody else around the scientific community to look at the work we've done. Help us find flaws so we can correct this, so we can have a real understanding of that. Why has it been so challenging for our science communities to be able to apply this same method of analysis to objects we see, either in the air or anyplace else, that are, to this point, unexplainable? I think that the biggest obstacle has been this taboo, this stigma, this attitude of ridicule towards this topic. And so scientists over the years have been afraid to touch it, even if they were interested. It was just not acceptable among their colleagues. They couldn't get grants to research it because it was considered taboo. And it's only been in the last five years that that started to change. So that's been a big obstacle. I think another one is that these things, it's not like you're looking at a star that you can look at as often as you want and everybody can see the same thing over a period of time. These things flip in and flip out of our reality and each sighting is different. And the third element that makes it very difficult is that, as I mentioned, the best data is kept classified. The scientists don't have access to it because of all the national security issues around this and this excessive secrecy, which I believe is excessive, but nonetheless, the Department of Defense feels it's necessary to keep a lot of this stuff under wraps. I can certainly see how those additional things would make it a real challenge. I mean, are there reports of 
situations where something has remained for more than just a few minutes? Is there anything that's been around for half an hour or an hour or something like that? Absolutely, there have been. In 1997, there were objects going over Arizona for like an hour, an hour and a half. You know, these gigantic things that were floating over. And then there was a, a wave of sightings in Belgium around 89, 90, that these objects just kept coming back. And yeah, they would stick around and the police officers would watch them for 20 minutes. All kinds of things like that. Now, the issue is those kinds of events don't seem to happen anymore now that we really are prepared to try to study them at another level, right? It's like right. bad luck, guys. We, we like waited too long. <laughs> So many more people have the ability to record events visually than ever before. One would think that the government would want to ask the public to cooperate and help out by collecting data that could then be delivered to a central collection point that could be used for analysis. Well, that's a really interesting point, Derek. I have to say, why don't they do that? I don't know. They seem to want to do their own thing. But there are some companies that have been set up in recent years, these sort of labs, these high-tech companies, which you know I'm not really involved with, but what they are doing is developing apps that people can have on their phones to collect data. Ooh. And they're setting up databases mm. for people to pool their data. If you'd like to learn more about these apps and databases, We'll have links to some of them in the show notes. So this is all happening. It's just not happening within our government, but it's happening within a number of organizations. So Leslie, let's now turn toward talking about how it is that science is beginning to turn toward this in a much more organized and purposeful fashion. How is that beginning to shape up and which direction is this headed now? I think one of the, the really exciting developments in this regard is the Galileo project, which was set up by an astronomer at Harvard University, of all places. His name is Avi Loeb, and he has put together a group of scientists from all different disciplines, a very impressive group of people, and they are setting up stations. They've experimented with one on the roof of the Harvard Observatory to just test it. But they're putting a lot of money into developing the most advanced gear that they can, which will allow them to collect their own data. And I encourage people to go on the Galileo Project website and you can read all about what they're doing and everything that they collect is going to be made public. You know, they're funded by private donors. They don't want anything to do with any classified information, even if some of their people are, you know, invited into the government in that way, they don't want anything to do with that. It's like, we are scientists and we're here to satisfy the desires of people to understand what this is. That's what scientists do. They're motivated by that. It's only happened in the last few years. It's inconceivable that it would have happened before 2017. So I think that Dr. Loeb is sort of carrying this torch, which has made it acceptable for a lot of other scientists to get involved. So going forward in this, the Navy's videos that were released that are so convincing to them really are historic in a sense that the Navy came right out and said, we do not know what this is. Exactly. We've done very careful yep. analysis. We do not know what this is. And by the way, 
We'll link these Navy videos and Leslie's New York Times article on them in the show notes for you to check out for yourself. So where does the Navy go from here? Because there was such a stigma within this field, their pilots were not reporting a lot of these things. So what they did was they came out and put out new reporting guidelines for the Navy pilots so that they've asked them now, please report your sightings. Here's the method we'd like you to use to do that. And so there's many more reports coming in now because some of the stigma has been removed and the pilots are willing to report things more. I think some of them still hold back. The Navy's been been really at the forefront of all of this in terms of government involvement. Is there a process, a similar process of reporting for commercial aviators? That's such a great question because that's one of the things I covered in my book, how the FAA told its pilots literally in its manual not to report UFOs to the FAA. Ah, yes, the FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration, This is the government agency that regulates all private and commercial air flight in the U.S., including drone and rocket flight. They were told to go to a civilian group. Yeah, it was actually in black and white in the manual for all the employees of the FAA. We do not want to hear about it. If you see something like a UFO that you can't explain, you go over to this group or this group. And I thought that was really shocking, and so have many other people. So... The FAA was acknowledged in one of the reports that was presented by the Office of the Director of Naval Intelligence. There have been reports provided to the Congress, which has been a major development as well. And within those reports, it has been stated that the FAA is now contributing data to the pool because they have things in their files. They are now getting involved. Um, I'm not sure whether commercial pilots actually have been told to report I'm sure that they are, are willing now to be more forthcoming with sightings. And there have been some sightings by pilots that were actually investigated by a civilian investigator. So again, these people went to a civilian, but they also reported to the FAA. I think there are still problems there, Derek. Honestly, with I remember some of these pilots feeling that they weren't being taken seriously. I think all of that's going to change, and the FAA just has to change its policy, and I think it's going to do that. I would like to think that could be the case, because all of this could really aid scientists in trying to understand what's going on here. You know, I have an app on my phone, as do many other people, that track the movements of commercial aircraft across the country. And But I remember that in one version, down in the lower right-hand corner, they had a count of the number of airplanes in the air, in the U.S. commercial airspace, I think it was, at any one time. And I remember seeing that that number was well over 4,000 aircraft. And that was just at one point in the day. So I'm thinking throughout the course of the day, there are tens of thousands of air flights going back and forth. And so that's a lot of eyes looking at the sky and a lot of data that could be contributed, you know, if anything is seen. You're right. There's a lot of eyes. And there were surveys and studies done around the time that I wrote my book, which indicated that only about 25 percent of sightings that commercial pilots saw or had were reported. They were just too afraid of the stigma. So hopefully that's changing now. Every cockpit should be outfitted with the most sophisticated camera there is so that pilots can just be ready to shoot to get a picture of something that comes along. Roger, flight 807, maintaining 15,000. So in the inevitability, Leslie, that we do figure out 
what these phenomena are. And it turns out that these are aircraft or vehicles that come from someplace else. Do you know of any place here on the planet that's preparing for what it means for humans to come to the realization that A, we are not alone in the universe, and B, we've had visitors. Yeah, I mean, it's such a great point, Derek, because it's a profound paradigm shift. It right? is, yes, it really it's is. It's just like discovering that the Earth revolves around the sun or that the Earth isn't flat, you know? It's, it's a major shift in our perception of who we are in relation to the rest of the universe. And so there's a lot of thinkers and writers and people who have thought a lot about what will the impact be on society because it seems that that time will probably come. I mean, I'm pretty convinced that there's no explanation to explain these things away, you know, among people that study this, that these are not man-made machines and they have to come from somewhere else or maybe some other dimension or maybe some time travel thing is going on. Who the hell knows? Who knows? That's a whole other kettle of physics. The other complexity is that maybe there's not any one explanation that fits all of them because there's such a variety of type of phenomena and manifestations and they do seem to demonstrate kind of physics that we don't think we have although i do know there are physicists who can theoretically explain through general relativity how a civilization well in advance of ours might be able to traverse space-time in the way that these things appear to be doing. There are ways of explaining it through physics. I'm not a physicist, but there have been papers written about explaining how this could theoretically happen. We don't want to get too deep into this, but general relativity is Einstein's theory in which he came up with a set of formulas that explain the structure of the universe as what we now know of as the fabric of space-time. And the way this fabric works is that masses sit on this fabric of space-time and they create distortions or depressions like wells. So we normally see this as like an object sitting in a depression. Now, talking about traveling using space-time physics refers to using what are called the gravity wells around these masses of objects distorting space-time to accelerate our velocity as we go from one place in the universe to another place in the universe. We have not been able to do this, but we know that it does exist. It was almost a almost a hundred years later that it was actually proven that the fabric of space-time as we know it, with masses distorting the space-time, creating gravity, so now we know that it's real. Not that we have the capability of engineering it, but the future civilization, millions of years ahead of us, say, probably could. But I do think you're right that it's going to have a big impact if and when that moment happens, if that discovery is really officially established as being a fact around the whole planet. And whether it's us coming from the future to visit us in our time, which might be their past, or if it's somebody coming or something coming from someplace else in the universe, that is going to require a major adjustment for us as humans living in this time, in this place right now. I think you're right. And or other possibilities, some kind of extra dimensional, you know, some other dimension, which physicists write about, that it bleeds in and out. Some people who I've spoken to who have been involved with this forever and have clearances and know what's, you know, involved with all of this, feel that society will really be in upheaval at the time. There'll be a lot of things that are deeply affected by it. 
Others feel that it really won't be that big a deal. There's no consensus on how it's going to affect civilization on this planet and cultures will probably react differently. I know in some parts of the world, this is already accepted as a fact anyway by the culture. You know, they don't really need the proof. They just sort of live with this belief. My feeling is that regardless of what kind of upheaval might occur, that everyone on the planet, if indeed this knowledge is there for us, if we really do know this, that everybody on the planet has a right to know it and that it can't be kept secret from people, just like all the major other paradigm shifts that we've been through. You probably know a lot about this, that especially within the scientific world, they'll cause a little bit of a problem for a while, but then everybody just adjusts, right, to the new thing and they continue with the science from that point on. If indeed this were to come out, you know, this is something, probably the biggest thing our civilization will have ever faced, I don't know. But some people believe that perhaps it would unify us more as a planet. Perhaps it would have a positive effect. Others don't see it that way. It's really an open question and it's an interesting thing for all of us to think about. It really is because this, unlike any other thing, other than world wars, possibly, uh, you know, it's that scale of a phenomenon that can have an effect on the entire planet. And I think the other thing to remember is, though, for a lot of people, it doesn't really affect their day-to-day -day lives. It affects your perception of who you are and your knowledge about your place in the universe. But, you know, a lot of people are just raising their families and going to work every day, and they really don't care that much. This thing's been here for a long time. It hasn't affected me yet. It's not going to affect me in the future. You know, okay, I'm, let's then go put the kids to bed. what do I need to, to bed, worry you know? about it? Sure. Exactly. So, you know, a lot of people feel that that would be the main reaction. If it doesn't affect my life, I don't necessarily have to care about it. So on that note, Leslie, you're really pursuing an effort to push this more toward the scientific side of things. And tell us a little bit about your series that helps people really understand this difference between what we've been thinking about before with unidentified anomalous phenomena and how science is beginning to push more towards trying to get us an explanation of what's going on. Yeah, this is a series that was made by a company that I worked with named Breakthrough Films, and it premiered in February over a few weeks on Nat Geo, and it is now streaming on Hulu, so anybody can go on. And yeah, it deals with a lot of the history. It deals with some of the best cases. We have the Navy pilots on that we were just talking about earlier. We have members of Congress who have passed legislation opening this up and requiring all these things to happen. And we have scientists on one of them is you, Derek, and you're absolutely fantastic in the series. It's just so great. The kind of um, sense you bring of the curiosity factor for this and the importance of science taking it on. There's no doubt that there are objects that are seen that behave in ways that are not natural for this planet or for this environment. This is a phenomenon we do not yet understand. And we do have an interview with Avi Loeb, who we mentioned earlier from Harvard. And we have an interview with another scientist named Gary Nolan, who's from Stanford, who is another very prominent figure, you know, nowadays who has been studying 
a lot of different aspects of this phenomenon. He studies some of the physical materials that are claimed to have come from UFOs. So he's also on there and it just really lays out over five episodes what we actually know about this and what don't we know about it and who are the people that can really tell us what's going on here. And it's scientists, it's government officials, and it's civilians. It's civilians who have been working on collecting data all the years where the government hasn't been doing it. And I'm in the series as well. It's other journalists as well. So it's a really exciting, well-made series. And it's called UFOs Investigating the Unknown. And I'm so glad you participated in it, Derek. I really hope everyone will tune in and watch it on Hulu. And I hope that as people watch this, they think about this as being a program that comes at this from factual evidence in as an objective a manner as possible with the least amount of bias possible so that you have a very clean kind of approach to what can be probably one of the most compelling scientific investigations in humanity and humankind. Exactly as you said, there's no bias, there's no speculation, there's no weird graphics, you know, of spooky music. It's a very kind of hard science, but exciting too, because we have very great cases and stuff like that, and we have people who have seen them. I think that you, Derek, because you haven't seen it yet, I know, but you're going to, I you am, will for sure. like it very much. I think you will like it very much, and I think the other scientists will as well. Okay, so here's my last question for you, uh, Leslie. We've known each other for quite a while. You visited Franklin Institute, and uh, we've done some work there together in some other places. I don't think I've ever asked you, do you believe in the possibility of extraterrestrial life? Yeah, I think I don't have a choice, Derek, because of what I know. I mean, I think that most scientists, and I think this probably includes you, believe that of course there's a possibility with the vastness of our universe to assume that there's no life anywhere is probably, I don't think anybody thinks like that anymore. I don't know. I hope not. Of course there's a possibility of it. The big question is, is there a possibility that that extraterrestrial life is being seen here around earth? And of course it's, you know, a lot of people will say it's impossible for them. If that was the case, how could they get here from so far away? And all the questions that come up, and again, we do have theoretical physicists who believe they can explain how propulsion systems could work and how space-time can be bent and all these wormholes and all the stuff that people think of as science fiction actually could come into play with a very advanced civilization. So I have to say, yes, I do think it's possible. I also will say that I don't think this phenomenon that we're observing is simple and that it, it may not be able to be explained as something as simple as, oh, we're being visited by somebody from other planets. That used to be the sort of prevailing view at the time I wrote my book that, you know, officials, I mean, I'm not just talking general public, but these are the people who are investigating this around the world for governments and scientists and so on. With They called it the extraterrestrial hypothesis. But now, we've sort of become much more aware of the complexity of this changing the nomenclature, that it's something way harder to explain than we might have thought before. And it's something that behaves in ways that are so hard to explain in any one, within any one framework. So I've got to be open to any possibility. I don't know what to make of it, but I don't believe that what we're observing is something that human beings have created. That, I'm willing to say, and I haven't been willing to say that until fairly recently. And it's my personal belief. I'm sure that there are many events that can be explained, even some 
maybe that we think everybody's agreed are UFOs, are anomalous objects. There may still be explanations for some of those. What a triumph it would be for a science to be able to come to some conclusion one way or another, or to discover this new understanding of the universe and physics we never had before. Could be totally that. It's just so wonderful to hear you say that, Derek. You're so eloquent, and I appreciate so much the fact that you are a scientist yourself, and you have this kind of open attitude about it, and this curiosity and this respect for all of this, which is rare in the scientific world. I think you're an incredible spokesperson for this. Thank you. I appreciate I, it. I'm just so grateful for it. I'm just trying to get a ride on a warp drive spacecraft before I get <laughs> off this planet. Well, listen, if I ever get my hands on one, you will be the first person Thank I will you. come to to offer you a ride. You deserve Thank you. it. Thank you. I appreciate that. Leslie, yeah. thanks for joining us with this. I really do appreciate it. It's been fascinating to talk about this, and I think you know, the more we can do to reframe this in the right way, the sooner we can come to an exciting conclusion of one thing or another. I agree, and thank you for being part of the process of framing it in the right way. I really appreciate that, Derek. And I hope everyone will tune into the series and watch Derek Pitts, how he's able to contribute to this, which is profound. Well, thank you. I appreciate thank that. Thank you again. Thank you for having that. me on. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Airman from the planet Earth, first set foot upon the moon. It came in peace for all mankind. Thank you so much, Leslie, for taking the time to sit and talk with me. And since we conducted our interview, NASA actually has formed an independent investigative study team to seriously look at these questions about UAPs. As I think about the discussion Leslie and I had, I really begin to think about so many different analogies for how UAPs can be studied that make sense scientifically. If we just look at the way in which exoplanets are being studied, exoplanets being planets that are orbiting other stars, there's a real scientific approach to that. You know, we make an observation about a star's anomalous motion, and then we try to figure out what's causing that motion, only to find out that perhaps there are some planets there. We can do the same thing with this particular phenomenon as well. We actually have to go forward. We have to take the observations we've had so far, investigate them as much as we possibly can, put them into a context that makes sense scientifically, in other words, do the science with what we have now, and then using that, be ready for the next set of questions that are going to come as we make more observations. As you listen to this program, keep your mind open about what you've heard so far and what you're going to hear in the future because there's lots more to be done. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. This podcast is made in partnership with Radio Kismet, Philadelphia's premier podcast production studio. This podcast is produced by Amy Carson. The Franklin Institute's director of digital editorial is Joy Matafusco, and Aaron Armstrong runs marketing, communications, and digital media. Head of operations is Christopher Plant. Our mix engineer is Justin Berger, and I'm Derek Pitts, chief astronomer and director of the Fels Planetarium at the Franklin Institute, and your host for this podcast. Thanks so much for listening.